You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Thursday, July 29th, 2010, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. And Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan is going to be joining us a little bit later in the show, but it wasn't able to make it at the beginning. I've decided to step in and take over Evan's early show duties um, concerning this day in history. So... Does anybody know what happened today, July 29th, 1964? It's hard to remember that far back. Uh, Nothing. I think it was the only thing where nothing happened. Minor consequence. You're close. You're very close. (laughs) But the actual fact is that skeptic Steve Novella was born. On this Come again? In 1964. <laughs> um, Steve Novella, he's uh, like a, a neurologist or something at Harvard or I don't know, somewhere. Um, and I think he's on, he's on that Skepticality podcast. <laughs> I thought he was so. a world famous cynic. <laughs> oh, yeah. Maybe that's it. <laughs> Happy birthday, Steve. Happy Thank birthday, you. Steve. Thank you, guys. Woo-hoo. How's it feel? You know, <laughs> same as any other day. old, you know. You do you know. feel slightly closer to death than yesterday? I do feel one step closer, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just like Sorry. every other day. Sorry about that. There is one other thing. Oh, is there? That happens yeah. day in history. Uh, yes. In 1955, the McNabb photo of the Loch Ness Monster was taken. Whoa, yeah. that's pretty serious. Mm-hmm. See? See, I know my stuff, guys. Yeah. Very you good. mean the fake photo? It's No, it's a real photo. It's a real photo oh. of a fake Loch Ness monster. <laughs> oh, you're right. It is a real picture. <laughs> well, let's get on to some uh, real skeptical news. We had talked before about the fact that uh, homeopathy is somewhat on the ropes in the UK after a concerted effort by scientists and skeptics to put it into perspective. For example, the House Common Science and Technology Committee, after spending a long time reviewing all the evidence regarding homeopathy, decided that there was absolutely nothing scientific to it and it deserved no support, funding, or further research from the NHS. And the British Medical Association also concluded that homeopathy is witchcraft. And a modern scientific system of healthcare like the National Health Service pretends to be shouldn't support it. Taxpayer money should not go to pay for it. That was all the good news. Now we got the bad news. Bad news is that homeopathy will not be removed from the NHS, despite all of this heavy criticism. And this comes from the new health minister, Ann Milton, who is playing the typical political, you know, middle of the road nonsense. She said, for example, that uh, the government welcomed the MP's report, but remain of the view that the local national health service and clinicians are best placed to make decisions on what treatment is appropriate for their patients. That is complete BS. It is complete BS. Speaking as a physician, I could tell you that that is complete BS. Now, Certainly, physicians need to, you know, individualize treatment, and you know, they obviously their, their most important role is gathering information about a patient. Uh, that's of course very individualized. But in terms of which pa- which treatments work and which ones are based upon solid evidence, that is not up to the individual physician and their patient. That's up to the scientific evidence, and that's why there are standards of care. There's even research that's looked into. You know, if if physicians 
do what they think is best based upon their own experience versus following rigorously evidence-based guidelines, guess which outcome is better? Yeah. Yeah, the, the evidence-based guidelines. Uh, so that that comment is is just wrong, and and it's extremely naive. But it's, again, it's that that's you know the uh, politically correct sort of thing to say. She also defended the use of uh, complementary alternative medicine in general by saying it has a long tradition and very vocal people both in favor of it and against it. Really? Yeah. Okay. So here we go there, again then. with with the ancient Chinese secret. Mm-hmm. You know, long tradition BS. And, you know, ba- you know, in essence, what she just said was, I don't want to piss off a lot of people that believe in it, so right. we're just going to leave it in there. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's, a, it's a totally politically gutless response. She could be a true believer, too. I don't know. That would be, I don't know what would be worse. But, you know, the kind of people <laughs> who get in, into those positions, into those very political positions, tend to be politically savvy and get there by not pissing people off, unfortunately. You know, not taking courageous stands just because they happen to be right. Well, yeah, I mean, look at the the last MP to take a courageous stand for science in a really public manner was Evan Harris, and he got voted out in the most recent election. Right. So we like to think of uh, England, I think, as being a bastion of rationality in a way, but unfortunately, the politicians here are pretty much just the same. Yep. Evan Harris, in fact, is quoted as saying in response to this, this is not a good start for the new health secretary when it comes to evidence-based policy. How does the government justify allowing treatments that do not work to be provided by the NHS in the name of choice when it allows medicines which do work to be banned from NHS use? There you have it. Yeah, so he's still out there promoting a a reasonable position, but it's hard. Yeah, he hasn't learned his lesson yet. We'll see if he actually gets voted back in. Despite his rationality, I sent Steve a link today. Uh, I found on the Mayo Clinic uh, website there is a a doctor there that got interviewed. So it's kind of like a embedded podcast inside the website where the doctor is basically saying that uh, for cancer treatment, that you know acupuncture is an acceptable method to help people deal with nausea and whatnot. And uh, basically, my synopsis of of that little interview that they have on there is that he's just taking the, the full softball you know uh, angle on on the whole thing like instead of saying no these things are not evidence-based whatsoever like nah you know they could you know some people benefit from it yeah people that don't understand any of this information or don't know that acupuncture is based on magical thinking you know that just is another little tick of reinforcement that's mm-hmm. oh you know okay so now here's another doctor another popular medical website that's, you know, talking about it positively or not flat out saying it's BS, which, which yeah. that's what that doctor No, it's bad. Done. I mean, the infiltration is complete into academia uh, and all aspects of it. In fact, in the latest issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, if you read my neurological blog post today, I reviewed an article on acupuncture for back pain. And it's the same thing, Jay. It's the same soft approach. They Essentially, they review the evidence – and they say, in a roundabout way, you know, but if you know how to read medical jargon, they say, acupuncture does not work, but we recommend you use it anyway, because it gives a placebo effect. Uh, ha- okay. And then, they, right. worse than that, then they recommend specifically 
that you refer patients to a physician who has been trained in medical acupuncture or a licensed acupuncturist. And my comment was, well, if by their own admission, it doesn't matter where you stick the needles. It doesn't matter if you stick it to any depth. It doesn't matter if you do any of the things that acupuncturists are trained to do. Why do you need to refer to a trained acupuncturist? You could have Bozo the Clown poke you randomly with toothpicks, and you'd get the same effect. My God, that's my worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, I don't well, know, I got to use that in my haunt. Bozo the Clown <laughs> comes into the, the, the uh, examining room, examination room, and, and like starts flailing toothpicks at you versus a guy in a white lab coat with his name on it that says doctor coming in and being all serious. I think there's a difference. Well, yeah, it's the ritual of the therapeutic interaction, but the point is you don't need any training to do that because all the training involves magic and nonsense, but this is now what they're doing, and this is the New England Journal of Medicine. It's ridiculous. The conclusions contradict the evidence that they're presenting, and just substitute, which is always my favorite mental exercise, just substitute a drug for acupuncture in this article. The drug showed no effect greater than placebo, but the placebo arm was better than no treatment at all. Therefore, the placebo of the drug works, and therefore we recommend that you take the drug, even though we're not really sure how it works. And you should go to a trained person who knows how to prescribe this drug. (laughs) I mean, that's what what it is. Don't these people read your blogs? (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's terrible. So, Steve, ex- extrapolate 5, 10, 15 years. This could get really nasty. Now, if the New England Journal of Medicine, I mean, all these institutions are being infiltrated. Yeah, I mean, yes. Yale, if you, you saved Yale single-handedly Well, it's last not saved year. yet. I mean, it's, I mean well, I'm just, you, I'm just got my finger in the dike. I mean, I don't know that right. I'm making it Exactly. But you, you were instrumental. Difference. That dike would be gushing forth if it wasn't for you last year. But <laughs> what the hell is it going to be like in 10 or 15 years? This, right. This is the big win. All the all the stuff we talk about, ESP, UFOs. So oh, absolutely, to this. absolutely. I agree. And this this is the big the big big win on their part. And it's, but we'll and see. It's We're starting to get some backlash. It all depends on how things go. You know, uh, hopefully this these things tend to, to 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 come and go. You know, the pendulum swings both ways. So yeah, but based on on your description of what happened at Yale and how savvy they are and how unsophisticated so many of these of the doctors are. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be like, you know, Vikings rolling over kindergartners. Come on. Well, the the big problem is is the shruggies. You know, is that yes. the most people in the system are don't care and they think it's yeah. harmless well, and they don't gonna, understand they're gonna care. what the uh what the real risks are. But that's that's exactly what we're trying to to change, you know. So Well, Bob, tell us about uh the cosmologists who think that maybe the Big Bang never happened. Yes. Hold on to your propeller hats for this one. This one was really interesting. A new model of the universe claims uh, that not only is dark energy superfluous, but also that the Big Bang never happened, meaning, of course, that, that maybe the universe has no beginning and no end. The lead researcher for this was Wun Yi Shu at the National Tsinghua University in Taiwan. He recently posted a study explaining this idea, uh, which I'm now going to try to do some uh, justice to, so wish me a little bit of luck. First, a bit of background. Uh, We all know what the Big Bang is, right? Well, I don't care. I'm going to sum it up anyway. The Big Bang describes the birth of the universe billions of years ago as a titanic space-time explosion creating everything we know. This has uh, successfully explained lots of observed phenomena, like the fact that um, at huge scales, everything is kind of moving away from each other, right, at uh, at increasingly 
fantastic speeds. It's all about Hubble expansion of the universe and all that. And then the other thing is that the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is kind of suffusing the universe um, and is suspiciously identical to what we would expect from the ancient afterglow of this explosion. So those two, those are the two main ideas, and there's plenty of other ones. But you put those two together, and it seems you know pretty damn likely that the Big Bang really did happen and really truly is the consensus. Um, and then th- this other theory that came out, I think it was in 1998, it made uh, world headlines um, – Claiming that after studying certain classes of supernovae, uh, that, that it had shown that the uh, not only is the is the universe expanding, but it's an ex- it's expanding at an accelerating rate, and the source of the expansion is is a mystery, and it still is a mystery. And they gave it they gave it the name dark energy to try to just to give a placeholder for this thing that we really haven't even figured out yet. So now this Professor Shu's theory he does away with both the Big Bang and dark energy and a couple other problems to boot. Now, he does this by declaring that the speed of light and the gravitational constant of the universe vary over time depending on the evolutionary state of the universe, where the universe is in, in its development. Now, this, this has been postulated before. You hear a lot about uh, the speed of light changing and things. But the kicker here is that as these values change, time and space are slowly converted into one another. And the same is true for mass and length as well. One changes into the other over time. Shu wrote about this. He said, we view the speed of light as simply a conversion factor between time and space and space-time. It's simply one of the properties of the space-time geometry. Since the universe is expanding, we speculate that the conversion factor somehow varies in accordance with the evolution of the universe. Hence, the speed of light varies with cosmic time. So the big picture then with all this, I know it's kind of bizarre, but the big picture here is that as the universe continues to expand, Time is changed into space, and mass is converted into length. And then when the universe contracts, the opposite happens. What? You got that? Yeah. No, it's I it's don't really get it. okay. Does well, anyone don't get worry that? About it. I'm just barely <laughs> wrapping my head around this. So, so my take is then that on this is that the universe is continually expanding and then contracting depending on the relative values of space, time, mass, energy, and length. So it depends on depending on how they're interrelated, the universe then will be either be contracting or expanding. So the ever-increasing expansion then of the universe can be explained by these varying relationships, and there's no need to invent a mysterious dark energy or, or even the Big Bang either, apparently. So the theory also does away with a couple other cosmological problems, like the flatness problem and the horizon problem. Look, look them up. I don't want to get into them now, but they're, they're also pretty interesting as well. And this theory just kind of does away with them. Bam, gone. Well, the flatness problem is interesting, though. We could talk, spend two seconds on that one. It's the notion that if you look at our universe, it looks incredibly flat, you know, right. it's not either positively or negatively curved. And th- that would only happen if there were very precise variables, vi- you know, values for certain variables at the beginning of the universe. So it's just very unlikely that the universe would be as flat as we observe. Um, right. However, one explanation I heard for that is that maybe the the universe, the visible universe is only a tiny little slice of the the entire universe. So you think about it as if you're only seeing a little postage stamp of a very large beach ball, it looks flat to you because that's right. only, even though it's a sphere, and that's because you're only looking at a tiny piece of it. But, uh, so that, that's, you know, a pseudo problem. I don't know how big of a problem that but really Steve, is. But Steve, even at that size, I mean, to use the metaphor that you just yeah. used, there's still a curve. Yeah, but it's very subtle. It's very yeah, close it's, to being flat. And that's right. what our it's universe very, is. Very, it's very, our very hard is to very detect. very close to being flat, yeah. Yeah, you might need, you might need almost unattainable precision to detect that, that tiny, tiny curve. 
So I'm not sure what you just said, Bob. Like I don't. I'm All sitting right. here trying to like sum it up, and I got nothing. I'm trying. <laughs> and well, let's see. The next question I think should be: how, Well, how do you test this? You know, there's plenty of wacky theories out there. You know, it just, does this thing make any predictions? And it's always good when when uh, theories make predictions because that's kind of what science is about. Um, so what he did, what you did, was compare his model to the to the Type One A supernova data that started the whole dark energy hubbub. And uh, and he said, according to Shu, he said that the data matches exactly. Sounds good. Um, I read a, a, a Physiorg article recently, and uh, the author of that article said that it fits the redshift data of the observed supernova quite well. So on one hand, it's exact, and the other hand, it's quite well. So take away yeah. from that what you will. But uh, it's an interesting theory. But one big problem that I've got with it is that, uh, and it's fairly obvious, I guess, that Shu needs to resolve the whole cosmic microwave background radiation thing. Yeah. And right now he's got no explanation for it, so I'm curious what he could possibly say to explain that away. Uh, to me, that in, in itself seems to be the main deal breaker for this theory. Uh, I don't think he's even going to get out of the gate very far if he can't if he can't really deal with that. I mean, where right. you know, how do you explain this this background echo of the Big Bang? You know, if the Big Bang didn't exist. Uh, so that's one big thing, and I'm sure that is on the top of his list. Yeah, that um, is non-trivial. That really, yeah. I agree. That's the obstacle yeah. to this theory. Big one. And, and any no Big Bang theory, this is not the first. There's always been this minority of cosmologists right. trying to propose theories of, of the universe that do not require a Big Bang. And that's always the big problem is that you know, the cosmic background, background radia- right. radiation is almost smoking gun evidence. It's, yeah, right. Exactly. It's so solid. That's why I really like hearing stories like this where real scientists are finding or at least looking for alternate theories. Yeah. Because I think it really shows creationists how it's supposed to be done. Exactly. Um, right, right. And when you have a scientist like this who's proposing something like this but acknowledging the issues that he's still facing, you know, it, maybe it helps a little bit. I don't know. You're absolutely right, Rebecca. And stories like this – that I always think of when people say things like, oh, scientists are rigid and they can't think outside the box and they have no imagination. Right. It's like, Ivory no, tower. you're an idiot. It <laughs> yeah. has absolutely nothing to do with science is like. If you spend any time reading the work of actual scientists, you realize that that's the opposite of the truth. Yeah. And this is, a, this is a perfect example yeah. of that. Well, I tried to think of a couple of more subtle ones. One of them was um, just the, the whole nucleosynthesis and the observed abundances of the elements right in the universe yes. i mean that's consistent with the, with the big bang I mean, where you know why is there any hydrogen left if the universe is ageless um perhaps one possible explanation he could come up with is that in the uh contraction phases somehow entropy is reversed um i yeah, guess entropy is a problem for his theory yeah, too. that's another that's another kind of big problem so um interesting theory but it would be it would it would be very nice, though, to think of, of an unending universe. I'm not looking forward to the heat death of the universe. Now, Bob, what about this, though? It's now, one annoying. of the things, I'm not sure if this was in that same article, but one of the points that was raised in favor of the no Big Bang model right. is that the, the notion that cosmologists, when they invoke dark energy to explain the accelerating right. expansion of the universe, that conservation they're kind of, of energy. glossing over the conservation of energy and that this is also a potentially fatal flaw to to the currently accepted model. Have you read about that? I've, I read a little bit about it. I didn't I didn't bring it up because uh, my take my take on it was that they're really not they're really not sweeping conservation of energy under the rug and and in a in a kind of a subtle way they're you know they're just not doing that and it's it's kind of an, not an accurate reflection of what's going on. Yeah. Well, I mean, so the other th- what else I again I, I'm 
you know, Bob and I, of course, are not experts. We're just trying to understand, you know, what people are writing about this. But there's another, and I think, Jay, you actually sent this out uh, on um, the blog Cosmic Variants. Uh, the author, Sean, writes that energy is, in fact, not conserved in the universe, that the conservation of energy actually only applies to, uh, a, to static space-time, and that the general theory of relativity does not include the uh, conservation of energy within the confines of general relativity. In other words, if you if you have a you know evolving space time, the conservation of energy does not apply, and that therefore this alleged problem of the accelerating universe and violating the uh, conservation of energy is a non-problem because general relativity has already dealt with it. But I don't know if that's the final word. That's just what these guys are saying. But very interesting. Well, Rebecca, you're going to tell us about the lost ghost ship. I am. Uh, ghost ships are very cool. The idea yes. is, um, you know, when uh, back in, say, the 1800s-ish, um, a lot of ships were exploring the Arctic trying to find the Northwest Passage. And a lot of them, um, a fair number of them, ended up getting stuck in ice. And they would sometimes have to um, stay, you know, throughout the winter in the Arctic and hope they survived long enough for the summer to come around when they could get unstuck and, and sail on. But a number of ships never never made it out. Um, and in, that's sort of the case of the ship that was recently recovered. The HMS Investigator was lost for 150 years. It was captained by Robert McClure in 1850. And it was stuck in the ice. They stayed uh, in the Arctic for a few winters before eventually they just had to give up and they were rescued. Um, most of the, the sailors were rescued by uh, by another ship, the surviving sailors, I should say. Uh, and they just have to abandon the ship. And so then what happens is the ice melts and the ship just sort of drifts around. So there are a number of these sort of ghost ships that were over the past 150 years or so. They, they get spotted um, and some of them get some nice myths built up about them, you know, like what happened to the sailors on board and why is this random ship just floating out there with no crew? So those guys must have been like really like hungry and cold when they found them, right? Yeah, well, they had spent, I think it was three uh, winters in the Arctic. And yeah, you don't, uh, you don't do that without taking on some serious damage. So a number of the sailors had died uh, and... I'm not sure exactly how many people they managed to rescue, but remarkably, they did survive. Some hardy people. Yeah, so they they finally... uh, The problem is, you know, it's difficult to find these ships because not only is the surrounding land treacherous and, you know, full of ice, but also because when the ice melts, these ships kind of drift off and then they could sink uh, and you don't really know exactly where they're going to sink. Well... Canadian archaeologists had a pretty good idea of where the HMS investigator might be. So they launched this this sort of exploration to find it. And they went to the, um, the exact body of water where they suspected it might be. So they used side-scanning sonar uh, from an inflatable boat. And it only took them 15 minutes after 150 years of attempting to find the ship, it took them 15 minutes with some sonar, 
and they found it and it was sunk in shallow water and it was pretty well preserved and they even found the bodies of three stranded sailors on it so um it's a pretty cool discovery and uh their next step is going to be getting in there to um to get a, a video camera down under the water so they can take pictures of the wreck and and figure out exactly what happened and what's been left behind so no ghosts yet but mm-hmm. you know they might once they get the camera down there who knows we might see some some serious ghost pirate action so there might be Ooh. booty on those ships don't to- don't tease me booty some treasure (laughs) (laughs) Um, there are still other um, famous ghost ships that are unfound and may still be sailing around I think like the Mary Celeste is a is an example of a ghost ship not in the Arctic but you know there there's pretty much like a whole um, it's it's its own little little ghost culture there isn't the uh, the Flying Dutchman like the really famous one? The Flying Dutchman. That was the one in the Pirates of the Caribbean, right? I was looking up the Northwest Passage. They didn't find a way through that for another 50 years until uh, rolled a Munson, 1903 to 1906, uh, is when they fi- first navigated the Northwest Passage. But it really was not very navigable because of Arctic pack ice until around 2009 when uh, good old global warming... <laughs> causing the ice, the the Arctic ice to recede, has made it more navigable. So they must be finding some cool things on those boats. Well, yeah, I mean they're basically pretty preserved, I guess. It's not like they're getting ransacked by passing polar bears or bacteria. Mm. This is like um, that news item we reported on uh, th- three or four episodes ago about the uh, the guy finding the atlatl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Except, you know, it's a boat. <laughs> <laughs> so the Flying Dutchman, by the way, is folklore. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there ever was a real ship referred to as Flying Dutchman. The next item is uh, another bit of research on a diet and weight. This is always an interesting controversy, the relationship between the kind of foods that people eat and weight control as, whether, as well as overall health. Now, I'm of the opinion that uh weight is determined by calories in versus calories out and all of the other metabolic factors around eating carbs versus protein versus fat doesn't have any significant you know measurable direct effect on weight aside from its relationship to how many calories you eat um eating calorie dense foods tends to cause people to eat more calories and and gain weight for example uh well a recent study that was uh published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. This is analyzing data that is being collected for uh, a long-term epidemiological project called EPIC-PANACEA. That's an acronym for the European Prospective Investigation into Cancer and Nutrition, Physical Activity, Nutrition, Alcohol, Cessation of Smoking, Eating Out of Home, and Obesity. Would have loved to have been on the committee that came up with that one. Uh, but it's involving hundreds of thousands of individuals over a year. So this is a great epidemiological study. And what they did is they just looked at the initial uh, weight, which was actually people entering into this survey were, were weighed, but then they re- self-reported their estimates of their caloric intake. And they also, it, at, some, at many centers, they self-reported weight. At some centers, they, they, were, they continued to be weighed in follow-up. And what the researchers found was that eating 
an extra 240 grams per day of meat was associated with weighing two kilograms more after five years. That much is, you know, pretty straightforward. But the way this is getting reported is that that perhaps eating too much uh, meat is contributing to the uh, obesity epidemic. And in my opinion, even more of an extrapolation from this data, that cutting back on meat would actually be helpful in losing weight, uh, which somewhat contradicts, you know, the uh, the whole, you know, low-carb, high-protein craze. Like the zone. Yeah, or Atkins. But actually, you know, the thing is, I don't think this data can be used to make any such conclusions. It's a, it's a good it's a good exercise in you know examining these studies and trying to figure out what they actually do say and what the strengths and weaknesses are. Obviously, it's a big study that that's that's the strength of this study. But when you think about it, two kilograms over five years—that's about five pounds over five years, or a pound a year, or thirty-five hundred calories a year. That comes out to less than 10 calories a day. In order to believe uh, the results of this study, you have to believe that people can estimate their caloric intake yes. to within 10 calories per day. Hmm. That's which ridiculous. Is a, which is absurd. That was hmm. my biggest problem, see, with the, with the whole premise of this, this thing, with the, yeah. whole, the whole auto-reporting thing and, and estimations of calories. That's, yeah. To me, it's that's... half a cracker. I mean, it's yeah. nothing. It's a crust of bread. <laughs> so, it's wait, Steve, repeat that last thing. They're saying that you have to be that accurate in your caloric intake? Well, if they're basing... You know, the, so it, the, the thing that really irked me was this study was reported that eating meat was associated with weight gain, even with identical calories. But that I, quote unquote identical calories is based upon self-reporting to within an accuracy of ten less than ten calories per day, which is ridiculous, right? Mm-hmm. In in the same discussion, they also mentioned that maybe the effect is through hunger. You know, that people who eat more meat. Are, are overall more hungry and it causes them to inc- to eat more calories, but that contradicts the whole same amount of calories premise because you know the the effect of hunger is that you eat more calories. Yeah, that would so, not be the same number of calories. Right, that would therefore not be the same number of calories. So it didn't even make sense. The speculations about how this could work. The other thing is, this is looking at weight. Now, if we put aside the whole self-reported thing and say, okay, it's a lot of people and uh, it averaged out to the point where there's a real effect there. Um, it wasn't systematic overreporting by one group of people or another. Then we still have to, con- to consider the fact that, well, they, they tried to control for that as well, but again, okay. that was, you know, physical activity was also self-reported. Um, but anyway, this is just looking at weight. It's not looking at, it's not even looking at BMI, right. your body mass index, which, which actually wouldn't even really be adequate. They, you know, really, in order to say that eating more protein had, an adverse effect on adverse effect on weight control. You would really need to do something akin to body fat percentage here, right? Well, I mean, How what, do we? What if they? What if they gained the, that weight in in muscle? What if that's exactly. muscle weight, right? What if eating more protein makes you retain more muscle? Do they maybe those five pounds or five pounds of muscle? We don't know that. They should have at least included data. at least including um, like a, a waist measurement or a skinfold thickness, just something Nothing. to indicate fat levels. I mean, that's wow. Yeah. I wonder how relevant these sort of studies are, though, to the everyday person when you consider that most people who are overweight or obese could probably just lose weight by simply eating less in general. I mean, not worrying about just so long as you're getting the right nutrients and just cutting back in general on what you're eating. I mean, 
Is exactly. that is that just completely naive to? No, no, you're it? absolutely right, Rebecca. Not that's that's my point. Mm. That the things that actually do seem to work when you look at clinical evidence in people and you know what diets are effective, the the factors that seem to make the big difference is just portion control. Right. It's and it's finding some way to conveniently estimate your caloric intake and consume fewer calories and have a generally balanced diet, and not if a restrictive anything, diet. I, I think if we want to help people do that, we should look at how incredibly difficult it is for people to do that. I mean, you yeah. you look at how when you put people on these diets that even when they actually work, um, usually because of portion control, um, yeah. how difficult it is for people to continue that. And that's just this human thing that just keeps happening. Um, a very small percentage of people are actually able to make a real change to their diet that lasts and lets them keep the weight off. So... I, yeah, I just think that it'd be more, it'd be much more worth our time to look at that and try to fix that rather than yeah. worrying about me. Although, and I think meat. there are a lot of researchers are looking at that. I, I do think there's a disconnect between the, the diet and nutrition research community and the kind of headlines that we see, you know, mm. that the popular book, the self-help books, the diets and all that is based upon these minority views and these actually discarded views. But that's what the public wants to read about here. Whereas the, you know, the mainstream researchers, they understand the fact that it's calories in, calories out. You know, that's, mm. there is no magic formula for weight loss. Exactly. They're, they're fighting against psychology. People want a panacea. They want a pill. They want something really easy. They want a shortcut. They just don't want to buy There's the no fact, yeah. right? They, they, they don't. They just don't want to buy the fact that there is no shortcut. It just takes effort. You got to eat less and move more, and that's it. That's game over. Done. I mean, People, the only now, things that you can do, hard. like there are things that like that would be customized down to the individual. Like I know what kind of exercises I'm more likely to do than others, right? So if I pick, choose wisely, like. You know, yeah. maybe ride the bike while you're watching TV or if you can get an exercise bike in front of your TV. You know, eat more uh, bulky fruits and vegetables. Like I noticed that if I eat like an apple that it actually does suppress my appetite. You know, there, there are choices you can make that can help. You know, the, the, they're not these huge significant things but enough where it might push yeah. you over over the edge to where you can actually lose weight. But the evidence shows that the exercise that works best is the exercise that's fun and convenient. If it's a pain in the ass, you're not going to do it. Don't, so it don't, really... yeah. don't obsess over the most efficient exercise you could possibly do. Pick any exercise. I don't care if it's just walking on your hands. If you enjoy that and you're going to keep, and you're going to do it, then right. do it. Then totally do it. And don't worry about doing, uh, you know, cross country skiing. Because... It's the same thing with diet. If your diet is a pain in the ass, you're not going to do it right. for long. It's got to be something you enjoy. That's, that's reasonable. That's not, it doesn't feel like you're starving yourself, but that just it has some basic, calorie control in it. But the other things that seem to work are having some kind of buddy system. Some people do better if they have somebody to help keep them honest. And also just weigh yourself once a week, man. You, you need the feedback of the scale so that you know what's working and you keep it in your in your consciousness. If you go months and years without weighing yourself, you know, you, without that constant feedback, you can't right. know if you're over or under eating. Evan was able to join us for Who's That Noisy and then later in the show for Science or Fiction. So, Evan, it's time for Who's That Noisy. All right. Last week's Who's That Noisy is as follows. Ask yourself only what are the facts and what is the truth that the facts bear out. Never let yourself be diverted either by what you would wish to believe or 
by what you think would have beneficent social effects if it were believed. Okay, that was Senator Palpatine, (laughs) (laughs) also known as the Emperor. No. (laughs) No, no. You guys knew who that was, right? I think you guys guessed that. Bertrand? Yeah, Bertrand Russell. A lot of people got that. Yeah, a lot of people did get that. I didn't know his voice was so recognizable, especially kind of an older voice with a much younger crowd. So I'm glad that uh, this young, hip crowd that listens to our show has an appreciation for the classic minds out there. So Bertrand Russell, he was a British philosopher, uh, mathematician, historian, atheist, socialist, pacifist, and a social critic. And he wrote and talked about lots of different things. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yes. And, uh, of course, uh, a lot of people got it right. Uh, Belgarath from the message boards was first to get it correct. Well done. Belgarath again? Well, you know, some people wait for the podcast to come out and jump on Who's That Noisy? And if you know, you know. Yeah. You know, there's some people that do that. (laughs) And it's a good thing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. Now. This week. This week. We have someone who is not Bertrand Russell, I can tell you that. Wait till you hear this. That narrows it down. And this earth's been here 6,000 years, and I know I'm going on and on, I'll shut up. It's been here 6,000 years. That's all you get. Okay. So we know it's a woman, and she's an idiot. And a young earth. (laughs) 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 See what I I mean when I said that was not Bertrand Russell? Yes, definitely was not. <laughs> 6,000 years. Uh, oh, we've come so far, yet we've barely gone at all. But everyone ways. knows it's 10,000 years. Come on. All right. Good luck, everyone. Thank you, Evan. Right, well, let's go on to a couple of your questions and emails. First question comes from William Welch in Birmingham. And William writes, maybe I've missed it, but I have not heard you mention biodynamic agriculture. This seems like it should be prime fodder for the show. And I would love to hear your opinion of this growing fad of hocus pocus. So this goes back to the 1920s and to some degree was part of the early organic farming movement. You know, some of the references I read said that organic farming kind of evolved out of it, but I don't know if that's how literally true that is. Uh, but this started with a series of lectures in 1924 by an Austrian occult philosopher, Rudolf Steiner. This guy was a real winner. And it essentially is astrology of farming. A lot of the orga- things that you think of as organic farming principles, like you know, having a balance between the, the soil and the crops and the organisms – and you know, not using chemical fertilizer, using everything that's natural, and and being sustainable, etc. That thinking of the farm as an ecosystem, but uh, biodynamic farming goes well beyond that, and they involve things like planting and harvesting and doing other aspects of farming. Uh, at certain times, depending upon when the moon is full or what you know what the astrological signs are. So it, it basically is timing these farming events to astro- astrological events. Uh, it also involves a bit of alchemy, uh, putting certain magical potions into the soil, homeopathic preparations, uh, and and you know real uh, witchcraft, like filling the horn of a bull 
with herbs and potions and burying it in the field under a full moon. I mean, <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's like real stuff like that. Now, this guy, um, Rudolf Steiner, though, I mean, he had, he was trying to, you know, really, this is like the early 20th century. This was just before this, the spiritual movement had hit its peak, its real heyday. Maybe it was receding a little bit as more of a scientific utopia was, was gripping public imagination. And if, and he was part of, he was one of those people at the time who was like really trying to bring back spiritualism and trying to merge it with science. He was definitely a vitalist, you know, thought that there was some, you know, vitalistic essence to living things, that it wasn't just a pile of chemicals, no matter how complex, there had to be something else to it. So, Steve, they're basically, they basically believe that there is the, the same magical power that can uh, can help heal people like within homeopathy or in chiropractic that same life force is applied to farming yeah so it's like you have the the biological balance you know in terms of looking at the ecosystem rather than just you know using chemical fertilizers etc but also a spiritual balance. So it's like organic farming, the whole sustainable organic farming thing, but then grafted onto that was a spiritual level where the farming also has to be in spiritual balance with the universe. But then that's basically just alchemy and astrology uh, and magical potions when you get down to it. So that's bio, biodynamic farming or agriculture in a, in a nutshell. And it is experiencing a little bit of a resurgence. So I mean, what, what can we possibly say about this other than it's complete it's magic? B- yeah, it's complete BS. It's a waste of time. It's 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 you know, le- not only are they wasting time coming up with these ridiculous ideas of like burying potions in the ground, they're doing it. Wow. Yeah, they're doing it. Wow. So yeah, I mean, some critics have said that now if the um, some of the a lot of the criticism comes from modern day organic farmers because they see this as sort of an embarrassing magical you know uh, cousin of organic farming uh, so they have said that there's really nothing that biodynamic farming adds to sustainable organic farming that isn't magical nonsense so what, anything that's good about it is is subsumed already under organic farming but i you know think that i'm not a big fan of organic farming because i think that it's based largely on the the naturalistic fallacy and i think you could kind of say the same thing about organic farming when you compare that to just sustainable agriculture, that if you use evidence-based sustainable agriculture, that incorporates all the things in organic farming that actually work without an ideological dedication to the naturalistic fallacy. Man, Steve, before you said that last bit, I thought we were going to get in a good argument, but no, I agree. <laughs> I guess the things the things I think of that I lump under organic farming, you seem to include under uh, sustainable farming. So, yeah. I think, yeah, everyone wants farming to be more sustainable. You know, I mean, that's a, that's a good thing and, and sure. But where they get to, like, you have to use naturally derived pesticides rather than synthesized pesticides, uh, synthetic pesticides. That's based on just the naturalistic fallacy and nothing else. There's no reason to think that a pesticide that derives from a flower is any more effective or any safer than one that is that is manufactured in a chemical factory. And in fact, there's evidence to suggest that a lot of these pesticides may be worse for the environment because you have to use more of them. They don't work as well. There's no reason to think they're any less toxic. So that's where I, I depart from the organic farming. 
the next email, this should be a quick one. This one comes from Dallin Bastian from Crestview, Florida. And Dallin writes, I've recently encountered Orgel's laws and found them to be very interesting. You've probably already discussed it, but if not, I'd like to find out what, if any, difference there is between the Orgel's premises and Occam's razor. Is Orgel, who, whatever that means, taking the razor a step further? They seem to have a similar flavor, but maybe more distinct than I perceived. Then again, for all I know, Orgel was a traveling minstrel. And then Dallin concludes with LTS. What does LTS mean? Let's talk soon. Love the show. Love the show. Let's try sex. Yeah. Let's time squirrels. Let's try sex. That's a good one. Well, you guys ever hear of Orgel's yeah. laws? No. Didn't that guy have a TV show like in the 80s? Urkel. <laughs> Urkel? That one was a uh, that was now, these, this is evolutionary biologist Leslie Orgel, O-R-G-E-L. Orgel's first rule or first law is that whenever a spontaneous process is too slow or too inefficient, a protein uh-huh. will evolve to speed Come up on, or enzyme. make it more efficient. Orgel's second rule is a bit like a, of a generalized version of the first rule. And it can be summarized in a few different ways. One is that evolution is cleverer than you are, oh, yeah. which basically means that this is a counter yeah. to the argument yeah. from personal incredulity or the argument from a personal lack of imagination when creationists say, I can't imagine how this could have evolved. And the, the Orgel's response is, well, evolution's smarter than you are, you know, and you're, it's not limited by your imagination, in other words. The broader concept there is that evolution, quote-unquote, designs biological systems through a long process of massive trial and error, and that that kind of a system in general, using some kind of trial and error or some kind of feedback from actual use, Mm -hmm. is inherently superior to completely top-down design that's done um, independent of any feedback from from utility or use. so, which is essentially the answer to intelligent design, you know, that this is how evolution works. Well, let's go on to our interview. Well, we're sitting here with Jim Underdown from CFI, the Center for Inquiry West. Jim, welcome back to the Skeptics Guide. Thanks. Good to be back. And we're here to talk to you about uh, a new project you have wor- you're working on. I guess growing out of the independent investigations group that you've been running. So tell us about that. Right, the independent investigations group uh, turns ten this year. We have started getting all kinds of interest from other places in the United States for people who want to start active investigations groups. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're uh, we've sort of. Uh, we're, we're in the process of organizing that and sort of franchising and, and getting training together and uh, get people up and running about it, yeah. Yeah, so these are basically skeptics, right, who want to investigate either hauntings or, I should say, alleged hauntings or UFO phenomena or other things like that, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are paranormal claims all over the United States, and, you know, most local areas have some story floating around, and this right. gives skeptics an opportunity to go beyond just drinking skeptically or meeting or whatever and going out and asking some questions and see if they could come up with some answers. 
Mm-hmm. Is it possible that one of these groups could actually get hired by people that, let's say, somebody's afraid their house is haunted or whatever? Would you guys respond to that? Uh, but, you know, we've, we've had offers like that where people are saying, you know, I'm, I'll pay you to come and sort of the equivalent of exercising their house. Yeah. But, yeah, we don't take any money for it, but certainly we would go and try to find out whatever someone's experiencing. Can I make a suggestion? Sure. Take, take money. <laughs> it is tempting. Charge, charge by the hour. This is going to take a couple days, folks. Well, we could even create a haunting and then create the need and oh, then go get rid of it. So. Uh, yeah, but there's that whole integrity thing. Yeah. And, you, know, you know how that goes. It's it in the way every day. So uh, have you been on any of these yourself? Investigations? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We've done dozens of investigations. Uh, we, we've been in a few different states and looked at everything from weird images and underpasses in Chicago to ghosts floating around junkyards in Oklahoma City and an angel appearing on a hospital wall in Charlotte, North Carolina. So we're, cool. And we're quite active in California. Tons of alternative medicine claims and uh, ghost hauntings, and you know, there's never a lack of things to do. Jim, there must be one that sticks out in your mind. Um, you know, there are a few funny ones. Um, you know, we had a guy come in from Hawaii who uh, was a, an alleged telepath, and he had to do push-ups and drink Red Bull and throw ice water in his face to get prepared. Uh, there was Sparky the Wonder Dog who could could count from a number hidden on a board just like clever Hans. It was kind of funny to even watch ourselves with that one because the guy sent us a video beforehand and we thought, well, this is obvious. The dog is just seeing the movement of the board, and he stops barking when he gets to the point. So we thought we were being set up because it was such an easy answer to what was going on. So we're thinking about transmission devices and a dog whistle in the guy's mouth and releasing a scent secretly and, mm-hmm. you know, totally overthinking what was going on. And it turned out that it was just moving the board, and the dog stopped barking. Yeah. That's, and Randy would probably, the first thing he would do, is suggest find the absolute simplest explanation. Yeah, we always we start with that. I mean, you have to, you know, we think we know what's going on right away, but boy, you don't want to get too lackadaisical and, and get burned because yeah. or jump mean, to a conclusion too soon. Yeah, really have to be diligent and sort of explore as many possibilities as we can before we get into it. Yeah, it's often a, a very simple explanation, but it's not necessarily always the first one you think about. So you do. It is better to over-prepare than certainly to get blindsided in situations like this. Right. And, and a lot of times some people are excluding the simple explanation and they have that bit of information wrong. Mm-hmm. Like with this, uh, we did this angel sighting and it looked like uh, bright lights shining on a wall of this hospital. And everyone was saying there are no windows in the area. This is an interior hallway. So where could this bright light be? So you go in starting to think, well, if there's no windows, then I'm looking for something much more complicated, bouncing of light or this or that. And then, you know, you, you, we got there and found out that it, it was all a, a window down the hallway and across the way a little bit, and it wasn't obvious to people, but that was it. It was, mm. it was a window. It was a window yeah, in yeah, sunshine. Yeah. <laughs> so what did they say? They still fight it, Don't. you know. <laughs> you guys know. You yeah, know, yeah. It's, you can provide, and 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 it was what happened was the, the angel allegedly healed this young girl who was in uh, intensive care. So people really want to believe that's what happened. Yeah. 
you know, so I, I don't hate to show up and be the wet blanket all the time, but, you know, you just kind of say, consider this other possibility because yeah. it's really strong. Yeah, so uh, we were chatting before the interview about the fact that there's definitely something to be learned by doing these investigations, even when they're mundane or the answer is simple. The uh, I'm not against armchair skepticism. You're just trying to apply logic and you know Occam's razor to, to claims. But when you actually physically go and observe what's going on, you know, you learn stuff you didn't anticipate. And, you know, I was giving you the example of the electronic voice phenomenon that Evan and I went to. We didn't really have to do anything. We were just sitting in the room watching the other people do their procedure, their investigation. And there was all kinds of sources of noise that I wouldn't have had anticipated had I not physically been there, like street noise and a fan blowing and other things. Uh, so that's just something you, you can only know by actually being there. Right, and I, I think the other thing that happens is it humanizes the people involved. Uh, usually they're not crazy. Crazy. Sometimes they're a little delusional, but uh, they're not evil people. And just showing up and sort of being nice to them and finding out what's going on, um, it, it softens you a little mm-hmm. bit and you understand why people have these experiences. Right. So tell us more about you know, where, where you're going with developing your investigations group. You were talking about um, not only uh, training or educating local skeptics who want to get involved in investigations, but maybe you know, also uh, like centralizing um, referrals for investigations. Right. We're working on, and, and this, is, this applies to groups that you know, we'll be creating in the, new f- in the near future, um, but it also applies to groups like you guys have been around a long time. Uh, we have this idea that we're in the process of launching called Interskept, where we'll, there'll be a database of claimants that any of the skeptic groups could tap into and find out and get the experiences of someone else who's yeah. already, as, as we've all seen in you know the past few decades. Um, some of these people just go from group to group, especially with Randy's prize, and we have a $50,000 prize. So these people make the rounds, and they are going around and trying to win mm-hmm. the money, and it behooves all of us to know what everyone's experience has right. already been with them. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I would also recommend uh, on that database to have sort of a, a red list. I mean, there are certain, unfortunately, there are certain people who are indistinguishable from being mentally ill. You can't diagnose them, but their behavior certainly you know, fits that profile where they li- you should literally don't answer the email. Just don't they should, deal yeah, with the only, You really shouldn't just engage with them at all. And it'd be nice to have that sort of, you know, that list. Watch uh, out yeah, for Yeah, the watch list of yeah. <laughs> do not engage. Yeah, because sometimes you really do have to go a little ways down the road with someone to find out how right. nutty they are. Um, and, yeah, you don't want to have to have everyone to go through that same experience. Yeah, it's also, I mean, a couple of people we've come across are actually dangerous. Uh, so there's that, that angle. And, and you don't want to get on their radar by answering an email. Um, or they're, or they're, they're maybe they're not really dangerous, but they have nothing but time and the, and the desire to harass skeptics. So, again, you just don't want to get on their radar by actually replying to their email. Right. They're not even sincere about the process. Whatever's, I don't know who knows what's going on in their head. What format of data are we talking about? Are you talking about uh, documents, video files, audio, or phone call? Call this person to talk about this? What, what were you thinking? I think at of- this point we were just looking at a, at, a, at a website that only skeptics would have the, theoretically only skeptics or known skeptical groups would have, be able to tap into 
and access certain information about people who we've dealt with already. Like, like a, a wiki style? Yeah, wiki sounds yeah. like the perfect oh, so write-ups. Thing. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Or, or, yeah, or Google Docs or something like that. That's a really good idea. Yeah, and I think an extension of that could be a, you know, centralizing a way to refer people to investigators. So obviously we need cases, right? We need right. people who think their house is haunted. And this would be a good opportunity to, to fund those people into a local skeptically trained paranormal investigator so they don't find their way to the, say, less than skeptical paranormal investigators. Yeah, right. It, it, it helps local claimants because a lot of them really are sincere about, you know, I just want to know what's going on in my mm-hmm. house. And it also helps the, the, the local regions because then you get people who sort of know what they're doing looking into these things, and they can spread the word where they live. And I think people in a particular area would automatically have a little bit more credibility with those in their area by saying, yeah, I showed up and here's what we saw. And, you know, word spreads at a, at a grassroots level, and, and I think it does a lot of good. That'd be great if that led to a skeptical ghost hunters show. That would be, be great to see <laughs> yeah. the other side of the coin. Yeah, right. Ever happened, right? And you know, listen, I've been in pitch meetings. I live in Hollywood. Yeah, we have pitched skeptical TV, reality based TV shows many times, including, you know, sort of major money challenges where you could you could pull your whole audience and funnel it down to the best few psychics. I even shot a pilot. Uh, with the creator of Friends that were, they were trying no. to do this, all really? these things. And at the end of the day, the producers say, okay, how long is it going to take to find a real psychic? And I would uh-huh. say something like, well, if we're doing the tests right, I wouldn't bet the farm on it because it may never happen. Yeah. Well, how are we going to do 26 episodes yeah. and it never happens? Who's going to tune in after the first of course. 10? Uh, I, and that, that, that continues my point. The idea is this as well, is that the, the producers, the people that are editing the show, that are trying to put together the show, they're not going to have like basically the stuff that brings people into the show. It's just not going to, it's not going to have a repeat audience. People want, I'd, I'd but isn't it. that what we're getting already with these ghost shows? Same result every single time at the end, nothing happening. Ultimately, well, they they stir up things, and in fact, um, we have a few people in production on our uh, IIG in Los Angeles, and they've been on shoots where they've someone's in the background throwing a penny across in the next room or, or something because they can't just go day, week after week and not find something. So they have to right, make right. something out of anything that happens. Yeah, yeah. yeah and all that stuff can't can't take place on it, and that's unfortunate because. It, like I agree with one of you guys said it. You, you said it. You want it, Bob that you'd want to watch the show. I'd love it because I want to see the process. I want to see you know what it's like to interface with the people because like, they're really scared and everything. And then you reveal to them what the truth is, and that would be an emotionally cool moment for me. But from you know the general consumption, yeah. I don't think it would go. If you could make it entertaining, though, I mean that's that's the bottom line. You, if you get these producers that realize that that you know that's maybe is skeptically minded, would it help? But it's I think it's all entertainment. Just dealing with these people that we deal with with straight faces all the time and listening to their stories and going and checking them out and giving them a legitimate chance to prove what they say happens could be entertaining. I I mean, it's entertaining for us to go through the process itself. It's why people join these groups because it's a lot of fun. I I think maybe the challenge is setting up – because I understand what the producers are interested in. They want – there's got to be some kind of – Unknown or mystery. I mean, again, if, the, if everyone, if you know what the answer is at the beginning of every episode, then that's that, that could not be that entertaining. But what the mystery is is not whether or not it's a ghost. It's 
what which what of the it? many possibilities are right. the real is the real explanation and there's so many different things that could produce the uh, the appearance of a paranormal phenomenon that you it's not necessarily always obvious what 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 is the major malfunction that's going right. on here right. and that's the mystery and it could lead to some really unique resolutions that no one had anticipated before yeah. like wow that that can do that which can be interpreted this way how interesting is that and don't right. forget i'm sure once you do enough shows, ultimately, you, I think you could reach a point where you can't figure it out. And it's a real mystery. And, of course, it would be a, some rational explanation. Yeah. But there could be, you, could reach, you could have an episode where, like, damn, we just couldn't figure that one out. And some people would, of course, say, Latch well, it must have been a ghost. Then, but yeah. we, and we know it really wouldn't, but we just couldn't quite nail it. And that would be an interesting you know, resolution, too. Well, Jim, thanks for sitting down with us. Again, I didn't say at the beginning, but we're, we're at uh, the Amazing Meeting 8 in Las Vegas. Right. And you know, we ran into you, and we're glad to, that, to get updated on your investigations. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I just want to say we're uh, our 10th our anniversary IIG party is going to be in Los Angeles on the third Saturday in August, and, uh, and all skeptics are welcome. Love to see you out Great. There. All right, Jim. Nice talking with you. Well, thanks, thanks, Jim. Jim. Take care. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to sniff out the fake. Everyone ready? Indeed. Ready. Yes. There we go. Ready. Item number one. New research finds that consuming beverages with low-calorie sweeteners, such as stevia or aspartame, resulted in greater caloric intake overall due to increased hunger. Item number two. Researchers outline a method for growing mushrooms into packing material. Item number three, a new analysis shows that Michelangelo hid the image of a brainstem and spinal cord in a depiction of God on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Jay, go first. Wow, just like that, huh? Well, you're the only one who won last week. That's right. (laughs) All right, so we got new research that that finds that consuming beverages with low-calorie sweeteners resulted in greater caloric intake overall due to increased hunger. Huh? And I don't, I don't, I don't really go for that. I mean, then why don't you say that if you drink water, you're going to get, you're going to gain weight by increased hunger? Because in essence, you're pretty much just drinking water when you're drinking zero cal, a zero calorie beverage. So I, I don't agree with that one right out of the gate, unless there's a psychological component. But I don't agree with it. Second one says researchers outlined a method for growing mushrooms into packing material. Sure, that that does seem to be very possible. And the last one is a new analysis shows that Michelangelo hid the image of a brain stem and spinal cord in the depiction of God on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. That is so cool. That is so awesome. He did that. You know, I don't know if he did, but I just think, yeah, he's he was definitely kick ass enough to to want to do something like that. And I'm when you say hid, I get the idea that he did it because he knew that people wouldn't want him to do it. Just seems so um just a very cool thing for him to do, especially if he was really, really hiding it from people that wouldn't have liked it. So I'm going to say that the first one is the fiction, the one where people uh, drinking zero-calorie beverages um, are gaining weight. Okay, Bob. Uh, oh, man. Um, start with three. I'm kind of confused as to whether uh, the intention here is to imply that it was intentional on Michelangelo's part or this is just, uh, it's just a bit of pareidolia. I mean, you look at, I'm sure you look at a lot of his paintings, you could see a lot of, of images that you could interpret in multiple ways. 
as written, I'll give you, it says that Michelangelo hid the image. So that means it was deliberate, not pareidolia. I don't know, I don't know how you could, how could you could, you could show that it, that he hid that. I mean, how could you get intentionality? It's not, I don't think it's so specific that there's no other, you know, there's no way to interpret it other than a brainstem. Um, and spinal cord. Nah, man. The mushrooms, my take on the mushrooms is that, that, um, sure, I guess you could use it as packing material, but uh, why? I mean, wouldn't it be expensive to grow enough to make into packing material? Um, and wouldn't you have to have a, a process in there to, uh, to clean it and make sure there's no, you know, biological residues and, you know, bacteria or gnats or bugs? Yeah, but it seems like it would make a good packing material, but. I can't, you know, making those little peanuts. I'm sure seems to me that it would be cheaper and a lot easier than, than you know, mucking around with mushrooms. So, uh, wow, I don't. And then the, the low calorie sweetener, Jay. I think the implication here is that it's it's the fact that it's it's uh it's one of those low calorie sweeteners that is somehow you know causing people to to eat more. Uh, but another way to interpret it would be that it's just psychological. People feel that hey, I you know. I just got, I just drank a diet soda. Now I can kind of go crazy and have my, uh, and have my Boston cream pie. That's another way to look at it. I Bob, think. don't try to get me to help you here. I'm not. I'm just, I'm just talking, dude. I mean, the sweeter one, I mean, either way, I can go either way. I hear so much crap about this. I don't know what to believe. So, yeah. Okay. So I think you could just explain one psychologically that people just feel like they could eat more, I guess. The mushroom one doesn't make, doesn't make any sense either. All right, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with the mushrooms. That's fiction. Okay, Rebecca. Oh, is Bob finished already? Yes. Oh, wow. Goes by quickly, okay. doesn't it? Yeah, time <laughs> flies when you're staring blankly into space. Um, love you, Bob. Uh, I. <laughs> that said, I do have the same problem Bob had because um, the image of God on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. I've seen this i not just the image but um you know the the brain stem and spinal cord thing so um you know I, I i've seen it outlined and pointed out but it's always been like my stoner friend saying like dude it was it was a brain you know <laughs> so and and that's quite old you know i've heard this for quite a while i saw that ages ago so the fact that it's a new analysis by a presumably someone with more professional qualifications than uh, my dealer um, <laughs> makes me think, uh, makes me suspect it a bit. I can believe that um, researchers have, are growing mushrooms into packing material. That's another thing that's been around for quite a while. If not the actual uh, finished product, at least the idea of, of it, because there's a big problem with um, packing material um, wasting so many materials, especially like plastics that don't break down. Um, so organic material that can break down and all it has to do is, you know, stay together for a very short period of time while things are shipped. Um, that's a, that's a big area of research. So I can believe that. And that leaves me with the idea that consuming beverages with low calorie sweeteners, uh, results in greater caloric intake overall. Due to increased hunger, if you just said greater greater caloric intake overall, I'd be more inclined to believe that because I could buy the idea that people have a diet coke and decide that they can have extra fries, but that's because they're to them making um, a swap, and it's not because of increased hunger, and and particularly if 
the beverage has caffeine in it, then that would further curb your appetite. So I think that that is BS. Well, Evan is finally here to join us. Evan, better late than never. Oh, I tell you, he's coming straight from the gym and having to sit down and podcast. I'm exhausted. Hello, everyone. Evan. Hi, Evan. Yeah. Uh, how's everyone? Oh, on this day in history, 1964, what happened? Oh, we don't need it. We already Done. did it. No, 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 you didn't. You didn't do it the way I did it. Dr. Stephen Novella was yeah, yeah, we we did did that. born. Yeah, we did that. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> that was the obvious wow. one. But also born on this day are some other very famous people on a short list. Alexis de Tocqueville, Benito Mussolini, Bernhard Zondek, the German-born Israeli gynecologist who developed the first reliable pregnancy test, Isidore Isaac Rabi, who is a Nobel Prize laureate, and famous bass guitarist and lead singer of the band Rush, Geddy Lee. There you go. Hmm. I knew about Mussolini, actually, not the other ones. Now, where were we? Science or fiction? Is that, yes. where, I, is that where I've stumbled into? Yes, you, you missed everyone else everyone else's uh, guesses, so you're on your own. Can I, go ahead. can I just get a sense? Did everyone go for the same one, or is it all no, over the map? No, no sense. You're on your own. <laughs> okay, so uh, consuming beverages with low-calorie sweeteners, stevia or aspartame, one of my favorites, greater caloric intake due to increased hunger. Yeah, I, I think that's... I, I think that's correct. I'm not. Why is that new research? I thought that was uh, already established. But I, you know, I'm obviously mistaken if that is the case. But I, I, I definitely think that's true. Uh, the next one was researchers outlining a method for growing mushrooms into packing material. Uh, sh- that seems very plausible. Seems very smart too. Saves a whole step. Uh, mushrooms kind of grow everywhere, don't they? I mean, under all sorts of circumstances, and they're just resilient little parasites um oh sorry you're not fungi. parasites Fun- fungi sorry you're right they're, they're fungus oh they're not parasites and uh the last one michelangelo hid the image of a brain stem and spinal cord into a depiction of god on the ceiling of the sistine chapel wow i really hope that's true that's too cool <laughs> that's that's amazing uh however, so you like them all i do like them all <laughs> uh i think though I'll go against my instincts. I'll say the mushrooms and the packing material. I'll say that one's fiction. Okay. So you all agree that a new analysis shows that Michelangelo hid the image of a brainstem and spinal cord in a depiction of God on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. I hope it's true. You all think that one is true because it's cool. And that one is science. Cool. How do they know know he intentionally hid this? Well, this is the analysis. My guess is that they remove la- they remove layers, or they have a spec- uh, spectral analysis device that can look at the layers of no. paintings. No, oh well. No. It's nothing to do with it's nothing to do with the history of it. I mean, of, of changes over time. It's just a neurosurgeon looking at looking at one of the depictions of God. Now, this is not the famous one of God touching Adam's hand. Right, uh-huh. that, that I think Rebecca was talking about. Because remember, the Sistine Chapel is a lot of stuff going on there. This is a different depiction of God. And uh, this is one where God is sort of looking up and to the right, and you're looking up at him from under his chin. Not back and to the left, up and to the right. Right, up and to the right. And, the, and his beard is kind ah. of curling away in a weird way. And uh, looking at the images, it looks pretty convincing to me, you know, once it's sort of pointed out. That, uh, that, yeah, there's a brain stem with the spinal cord coming down. You know, you, we'll, you can, we'll have the picture, the link for the pictures on the website so you can see it for yourself. It, it looks 
specific enough that I think that it's a reasonable conclusion to say that that's there deliberately. Wait, and it otherwise looks quite odd. You know, so are you, you saying that it's not creation of man? It's another? It's uh, separation of light from darkness is the depiction. Oh. Because the creation of man one is pretty convincing too. It's pretty brainy looking. Now, it is true that Michelangelo did dissect many cadavers to learn anatomy and that, you know, as a, a way of improving his ability to sculpt and paint the human figure. And so he would have been familiar with anatomy um, to a sufficient degree to, to do this. So that makes it very plausible. Uh, I have a problem with this uh, site, with this uh place you got it from, Johns Hopkins Medicine. Website. Yeah, it's a dubious site, I know. Uh, might as well be, you know, <laughs> Transcendental Medicine College. Right. <laughs> I could see him, you know, being bored out of his mind <laughs> after painting for what, you know, months, you know, and just, you know, wanting to do something a little bit different or whatever. I mean, I just think it's such a cool idea that he would do that. I think it's pareidolia. <laughs> Is that, that you yeah. going with that? Yeah. Well, let's go on to number two. We'll go in reverse order. Researchers outline a method for growing mushrooms into packing material. Evan, you think this one is the fiction, and so does Bob. So you Ooh. and Bob are together on this one. And this one is coming. science. Oh, <laughs> damn it. Two in a row, baby. Yeah. <laughs> High five, Jay. And, and Bob, I think this is three story. in a row for you, right? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this is very interesting. Uh, what, what they do is, uh, and this I think will answer a lot of the questions that you brought up, Bob, they take um, waste agricultural material as the food, right? And then they um, treat it, I think they heat it to kill any spores or anything living in there. Then they seed it with a very specific type of spores of mushroom, and they, pl- they put it all into a formed mold mold. into a formed mold so that then then the mushrooms you know grow in in the uh the food stock and surround it so it actually that food whatever gets doesn't get eaten by the mushrooms just becomes part of the packing material and then the mushrooms basically grow into the shape of the mold so that when it's done it doesn't have to be shaped it's already in the shape that you want it to be in and then they heat treat it again to stop it from growing and there you go. Then you have it. Now they That's say, awesome. yeah. yeah, they say that this is there's certain they, they call this mycobond, and there are certain advantages. One is that it is um, very energy efficient, and that it takes about an eighth of the energy to wow. create this as it does as it does standard plastic, you know, peanuts or packing material. They're also working on a method of uh, of treating it to sterilize it, basically to stop its growth. That um, other than heating it, because that's where a lot of the energy c- expenditure comes from. So they're they're working with treating it with uh, substances that will that will kill the the mushrooms themselves. Like they they mentioned thyme oil, oregano oil, lemongrass oil, and cinnamon bark. They say that when they're done, the production floor smells like a pizza shop. Huh. Mm. <laughs> I guess a mushroom pizza. Mm, packing material. <laughs> But my question is: So, but does does whatever you like? You get a package with this as packing material. Does it smell like pizzas and mushrooms? I don't know. Uh, Are they magic be. mushrooms? Maybe you can get high and look at the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> Steve, I, I bet you that they uh, the colors. I bet you that they smell. They probably almost have no odor at all. Yeah, I wonder. Uh, I they that say that um, if the new process works out, that they then the energy use may be a fortieth 
of, uh, the, of the current energy costs for creating packing material. And uh, the other advantage is that it's completely biodegradable. In fact, you could put it in your compost pile or put it in your garden or whatever. And so interesting, you know. When I first read it, I'm like, what are they? You open up the thing, there's a bunch of mushrooms sitting in you know, Like instead sure. of peanuts, there's individual mushrooms. But it's basically just one yeah. you know, giant thing. Yeah, made of mushroom fibers. It, it looks very similar to just regular packing styrofoam, if, you know, in the pictures. Cool. All this means that new research finds that consuming beverages with low-calorie sweeteners such as stevia or aspartame resulted in greater caloric intake overall due to increased hunger is fiction. Yeah. Wow. Now, um, I'm wondering, right. Steve, did it still re- uh, result in greater caloric intake but not due to hunger? Due to something no, that would, like that would the, have been pretty uh, sly of me, but, that, but the, no. Uh, the answer is no, that this study showed that, in fact, it decreased hunger and decreased caloric intake and people lost weight you know, compared to people who were eating sugary drinks. Now, sure. the, now this, is, this has been a bit of a controversy. This is another one of those areas in where, where different kinds of evidence – leads to different kinds of conclusions that if you look at the clinical evidence um, and the animal data the, you know the basic science evidence it shows that using uh, artificial sweeteners like aspartame uh, does not adversely affect hunger and it does not adversely affect weight control and in fact it's a it's a easy way to eliminate calories from your diet. But if you look at the epidemiological data, there there is a suggestion that people may overcompensate for the sugar substitutes and actually consume more calories. And then there's a lot of hand-waving explanations. Well, maybe it's because of the effects on insulin. Maybe it's tricking your brain into dissociating sweetness from calories. So then you eat more sweet things and your brain doesn't think that doesn't doesn't relate that to getting calories. But those were all sort of speculation to explain this epidemiological data, but the clinical and basic science data never showed that in the first place. And this is more data. This is more of a, it's a clinical study hmm. showing again, in fact, there's there's none of these effects. There's no effect on increased hunger. Uh, there's no effect on overcompensating or eating more calories. People who you know, had the sugar-free diet drinks, consumed fewer calories. I mean, this, this science or fiction was crystal clear, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> no, I had no, there's no question in my mind. It's work See? it, Jay. God knows when you have another chance. Uh, wow, really, Bob? You're going to even try? I mean, two weeks last, in a the row. last time we played this game, I, I beat everybody, if you sure. recall. Hang on, Jay. Let I me don't. pick up your gauntlet. Uh, there it is. Good. Okay. <laughs> I don't recall, Senator. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bob. You want to have a, you want to play a little game? Like I'll, I'll start reading a lot of uh, of science news. I'll, I'll tell you what. We'll we'll, we'll judge all of Even August. More. Every let's see who does better in August. Between me and you. Yeah, just just you and I. Is there okay. a bet on the line here or what? The gentleman's yeah. bet. Gentleman's bet. Bragging, bragging rights. Jay, you're toast. No, no, no. I think listeners should suggest that a won't punishment. happen. Oh, okay, <laughs> wow, that's a great that, idea. I will oh, throw it open. Idea. Yeah, okay. oh, great. I will choose my favorite uh, suggestion from a listener <laughs> as to what the loser has to do in order to embarrass themselves. Right. If Bob and I happen to win all four, Steve has to do something that Bob and I choose. Or I do whatever the embarrassing thing is. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, right. You, get to, you get to choose suggest. among what the listeners wow. suggest. Okay, right. that's right. There you go. Okay, Bob. Of course, Why? next week, 
there's going to be ten options. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and Evan and Rebecca will judge if Steve was handling it fairly or not. I'm happy to be a neutral. Yes, I'm happy to be a neutral judge in all this. There we go. Very happy. Jay, do you got a quote for us this week? I have a quote. I have a really good quote, and it actually, uh, by coincidence, has something to do with something we were talking about earlier. This is a quote sent in by Alex Garner, and this is a quote by John Cleese, and it is, The really good idea is always traceable back quite a long way, often to a not very good idea, which sparked off another idea that was only slightly better, which somebody else misunderstood in such a way that they then said something which was really rather interesting. John Cleese! Yeah, I like that quote. That's a good one. I uh, have experienced that myself. Have you ever in a... You know, a creative endeavor with a bunch of other people. That's always seems to be the way that it goes down. Yeah, brainstorming yeah. is uh, is huge for creativity. Oh, good. And then everyone thinks it was their idea at the end. Yeah, that, awesome? <laughs> that is true. <laughs> <laughs> I came up with it. Well, thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Happy, Happy birthday, Steve. Happy birthday, Thank Steve. you. Thank you. And thanks to all of our listeners out there who sent me email or Facebook birthday wishes. I do appreciate it. And until next week... This is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on DIG or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. 